Karim Benzema is in some of the best form of his entire career. 15 goal involvements in seven league matches. But how? Also, Arsenal put Tottenham to the sword in the first North London Derby of the season on Sunday. We'll discuss how they did it. And one MLS star may be on the move to Europe before the turn of the new year. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tactics Room podcast presented by Breaking the Lines. My name is Will Fowler, and this is episode four. Count them. Count them on one hand. Episode four of this, of this mighty fine tactical analysis podcast. Dare I say, dare I say this good tactical analysis podcast. Is that going too far? I hope not. Uh, nothing like it, at least I think so. I haven't been able to find anything like it. Uh, let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room right away, right away before we even get into the, the analysis part of this podcast. I apologize for the slight downtick in uh, in audio quality. My trusty microphone, my my second-hand man, my, my podcasting partner in crime, is sadly on its last legs. I wasn't able to connect it to my computer. Uh, so I'm currently rolling with, with my phone microphone. Hopefully it's, it doesn't sound too bad. I know sometimes sometimes it sounds fantastic. Sometimes it sounds like I'm underwater. So hopefully that we get the former for this one instead of the latter. But regardless, uh, hopefully next week we'll, we'll have that issue straightened out. A quick run down the road to stables should have all of that straightened out. But we're rolling like this for now. Again, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't make for too poor listening. Um, I'm not going to dance around it, folks. If you know me or if you've listened to one of these podcast episodes in the past, uh, you know that that my week was brutal. My week was was absolutely awful. Back-to-back batterings from London rivals uh, in back-to-back weeks. I mean, that is that is really difficult to do. Conceded six times in two matches against Chelsea and against Arsenal. Rough week for Spurs, rough week for a Spurs fan. Um, but when you spend the week uh, convincing yourself that maybe you can get a different result, it uh, it gets even worse. So uh, unfortunately, an unfortunate defeat at the hands of Arsenal, but it was very, very humbling. And it's actually one of the topics on today's rundown. We'll discuss uh, what happened and what, what could have been different for Spurs. Although Arsenal, I have to give them credit, they were absolutely brilliant. So, uh, so full credit to them for three points on Sunday. We'll discuss that in a bit more objective, tactical light in the later stages of this episode. Uh, Before we jump into it, though, if you're new, I'd like to give you a rundown of what the point of this podcast is so everybody can feel welcome. Everybody is part of the fan base here at the Tactics Room. Uh, The point is to try and view the game in a bit of a different light, to avoid the same kind of clickbaity questions and storylines, and to go beneath the surface to analyze some of football's biggest stories. Um, This is episode four. There's three. Prior, if you if if my math is correct, there's three episodes prior to episode four. Uh, some of you have been here since the start. Some of you have been here since episode one when we were discussing Memo Lucatelli, Martin Odegaard, Jesse Marsh's Leipzig, and I see each and every one of you, and I appreciate each and every one of you. I remember who the real ones are, who's been here since the beginning, since the very very start. That doesn't mean though that if you're new to episode four, I'm not absolutely thrilled that you're here. Get comfortable, kick your feet up, stay a while. And maybe if you like what you hear in the next 30 to 45 minutes, go ahead and uh, and give some of the other episodes a listen. Let's jump right into it. I don't want to waste any more time with this intro because it's all been negative anyway. So I'm a microphone. It's about Spurs. I want to talk about happy stuff. And what makes me happy is strikers that are on absolutely blistering, scintillating, fantastic form. And we've got one uh, uh, to open up the 2021-2022 the club season. And it's, he, he plays over at the Bernabeu. Karim Benzema has been absolutely white hot since the start of the new season. Eight goals, seven assists in seven league matches. He's been brilliant. But the question that I want to ask is how? Because 
you look at at Benzema and what he's done so far this season, and the numbers really they really really stand out at you. The most uh, excuse me, the most goal involvements fifteen for a single La Liga player through his first six matches in this century, and that included what twelve or thirteen years, maybe more of Lionel Messi, like eight or nine years of Cristiano Ronaldo, and still. Benzema is the first player to hit that mark for any player in, in La Liga since the start of the new century. That is, is a fantastic statistic. He leads Europe's top five leagues in goals. He's tied for the leagues. He's tied for the lead in assists. He's been the best player on the planet since the start of the new season. A goal involvement in every single league match except for their most recent one, which was a 0-0 draw with Villarreal. Three goals and an assist against Celta Vigo, and that was was a diverse one. One on his right foot, one on his head, and one from the penalty spot. Two goals against Mallorca, both on his right foot. Two goals in their La Liga opener against Deportivo Alavés. Two assists versus Levante. Goal and an assist versus Valencia. Multiple goal involvements in five of seven league matches. But what really, really makes this discussion and this conversation so intriguing. And what the kicker is for me, and the reason why I wanted to dive into it in the first place, is that there's not a whole lot that he's doing different, at least on the surface. Statistically, he's he's posting, aside from goals and assists, obviously, he's posting numbers that are almost identical to what they were in years past. Is he staying more central to finish more chances? No. His heat maps from last year to this year are almost exact. Uh, is he getting more touches in the penalty area? No. His per 90s are, are almost a smitten image of each other. 7.33 touches in the penalty area per 90 last year. That number is, is slightly up to 7.39 this year. He's not getting many more touches in the attacking third either. He's, he's, he's only averaging like a touch and a half more per 90 in the attacking third. And he's actually getting fewer total touches per 90 than he was last year. So how is he doing it? Now, there are a couple of factors. For example, uh, he's completing a higher percentage of his dribbles. He's carrying the ball into the penalty area more. Uh, He's also way up in shot-creating actions per 90, suggesting that both he and his teammates are getting into more dangerous positions to shoot. Uh, That shot-creating actions per 90 number, 4.23 this year compared to just 3.08 last year. So, uh, while he may not be doing much different, the end product has certainly been better. Uh, but what stands out to me most about Karim Benzema and his stats from this season is that his expected goals per 90, and if you know me, you know that I'm a very analytics-based person. Um, I know these expected stats are, are still a little bit controversial. I certainly hope that they're not. I think that this is the future of where the game is headed. But I love it. I, I love these these expected stats. You can't use them to, to only... You can't use only expected stats to make an argument. But you can certainly use them to to bolster one. And this is exactly what we're going to do with Karim Benzema. His expected goals so far this season, per 90, is actually lower than what it was a season ago when he was one of the best strikers in the world. Despite eight goals in seven matches, he's only got 0.45 XG per 90 this season compared to 0.55 last season. Seven non-penalty goals on 2.1 expected. That is that is otherworldly. He's outperforming his expected goals number by 4.9 goals just in seven matches, which is absolutely bizarre. And it shows that arguably the biggest contributor to his high goals tally is, is not the fact that he's getting into more dangerous positions or getting more touches in the penalty area. He, he's, he's simply just been, been one of the most clinical finishers 
on the entire planet. He's not getting any more chances than he was, but the ones that he's getting, he's finishing at a higher rate. Take the match against Majorca, for example. That's one that I want to focus on. He scored twice, both with his right foot and both from, from relatively tight angles. They weren't from, from the byline, but they weren't uh, from, from point-blank range either. The expected goals for his first was 0.09. The expected goals for his second was 0.05. Karim Benzema bagged a brace against Majorca on an expected goals tally of 0.14. That shows you he is clinical. He is taking any chance he can get, and maybe, unlike some points last season, he's finishing virtually every single chance he gets. His two non-penalty goals against uh, Celta Vigo paint a similar image. He scored two goals on 0.38 expected goals, and one of them was a header that with, with like 0.07. That was a fantastic goal to watch, by the way, and that's one of the matches that I watched to take my notes for Karim Benzema. That is a match that I strongly suggest watching if you want to understand Karim Benzema's impact on this team, because um, he was absolutely brilliant, and a header was a fantastic, it was a striker's goal. It was brilliant. Um, again, it's not that he's getting more chances, it's just that he's finishing the ones that he gets at a higher rate. The player that was always the facilitator, right? He was always the one that 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 dropped deep to create and, and to, to generate chances with Cristiano Ronaldo in the team, and to an extent is still that. I still think that's what Benzema's best attribute is, is, is his well-roundedness and his ability to create chances as well as finish them. That player is now developed into one of the most lethal finishers on the planet, along with still being a fantastic, fantastic facilitator from that number nine rule. Karim Benzema has taken his game. We didn't think it was possible. He's taken his game to another level at the start of the season. But is there another reason? Could there be another reason other than just his fantastic finishing ability that Karim Benzema is, is scoring so many goals? We're going to focus on the goals for now. We're not even going to talk about his assists yet. That we'll do later. But I think there is a reason. There is another reason why Karim Benzema is scoring so many goals to start the season. And it's actually, it's got nothing to do with Benzema himself. That reason, I think, is Luka Modric. Because he has been such a force in that Real Madrid midfield. I was doing some stats diving on uh, on just this Real Madrid team as a whole. But specifically, uh, the players who, who like to get involved in the attacking third. And I looked at Luka Modric. And whether it's just... Uh, different scheme with Carlo Ancelotti at the helm, or if he's picking up some slack with with Tony Cruz having been injured since the start of the season, Luka Modric has developed into one of the most effective dribbling midfielders in the entire world. And he was already good at it. He was already brilliant with the ball at his feet. But he has taken that up a notch. Take a listen to these stats for, for, for Luka Modric, because he has emerged into Real Madrid's primary attacking threat from midfield in a midfield three that that mostly has included Casemiro and Federico Valverde. He's charging into the penalty area at a rate he's never done before since he joined Real Madrid. 1.76 carries into the penalty area per 90 compared to just 0.36 a season ago. He was not doing this in 2020-2021 and now he's averaging almost two carries into the penalty area per game. 9.4 progressive carries per 90 is almost two more than he had in 2020-2021. He's covering the most progressive distance since he's ever covered in his entire career. And he's completing, and this is this is the one for me that really, really just blew my mind. He's completing almost 90% of his dribbles. And these are not dribbles where you're picking up the ball deep and, and you're running at a, a less 
technically skilled midfielder who is is easy to glide past. Easy to glide past. These are dribbles, as we've seen from the other stats, where he is charging at defensively adept midfielders and center backs. He's running at the players who are most likely to dispossess you because he's getting so involved in the attacking third, and he's completing almost 90% of them. That is absolutely bizarre. He's been an instigator of chaos. And I don't use that phrase lightly because I've only I, I've actually only used that phrase to describe one other person on this podcast, and it's Denzel Dumfries. And for both of them, it's fully, fully deserved. But Luka Modric is just an instigator of chaos for Carlo Ancelotti since the start of the new season. And when he runs at defenses like that, it helps everybody in the attack. It helps everybody in the team because he can cause a whole host of problems, whether it it screws up the, the opposition's defensive shape, whether it mangles the defensive shape, or whether it, he, he's charging through the middle and he isolates Benzema with a single center back, or whether he opens up space between the lines for Benzema to get into. Modric's progressive play has been absolutely fantastic. I do wonder if it'll be more of the same when Tony Cruz does inevitably return to the team, because you look at this midfield three, and aside from Modric, it is a very defensively minded one. It's it's Casemiro who's going to sit in front of the center backs, and it is 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 Valverde too, who who to his credit will get involved in the attack. He mostly will will stay on the right side of things. If he's getting involved in the attacking third, he's not going to get centrally a whole lot. But Luka Modric has been that dude for Real Madrid in midfield, if I can dare use an American expression. Luka Modric is that dude for Real Madrid, and the numbers suggest much of the same. Um, he's been brilliant, and he's, his, his contributions in the final third, particularly running at defenders with the ball, it, it, it catches them between two minds, because on one side of things, you've got this midfielder running at you, so skilled with the ball at his feet, and most of the time, he's running into the penalty area, but you've also got this world-class, white-hot center forward that you've got to deal with, so what do you do? I think Luka Modric's contribution in the attacking phase of the game has really, really helped out Karim Benzema in finding space and, and, and poaching from there, because that's, as I mentioned, that's what I think Benzema's top attribute still is, is is finding space and using that to either take a shot or or wreak havoc and pull defenders out of position and create chances and help in the build-up play. Luka Modric has been absolutely brilliant in assisting that. Um, and that's all that's all well and good for for Karim Benzema. The the contributions of Luka Modric is giving the defense an extra body to worry about, an extra world class body to worry about, and that may be giving Karim Benzema more space in the penalty area in the attacking third, along with of course the contributions of Vinicius and whoever's playing on the right, whether it's Eden Hazard or, or Gareth Bale, uh, two players who, and we'll get into Vinicius specifically in a few minutes, but two players who will also attract the attention of particularly wide defenders, pull the back line wide, and that creates space for Benzema. Um, but Modric's contributions cannot be ignored because he has been otherworldly for Real Madrid so far this season. Um, and that's all well and good. As I mentioned, it's fantastic for Benzema. But it doesn't fully explain, I think, how these otherworldly assist numbers can be explained. Because yes, eight goals in seven matches is fantastic, Seven assists in seven matches is arguably more impressive for a center forward. And Benzema, as we know, is is not your traditional target man center forward. He is a player who will drop into the half space. He is a player who will look to get wide and create from there. But still, seven assists in seven matches is a brilliant statistic for Benzema. And I think that begins with the evolution of the attacking three as a whole. Because this is a Real Madrid front three, who in years past, really ever since Ronaldo left seems to to have been missing that that final bit of cutting edge that 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 one bit of quality 
that can bring them back to or, or near that level. They went and they spent big on Eden Hazard to be the heir to the throne. That largely hasn't paid off yet. They went and they brought in Vinicius and Rodrigo, two young Brazilians who they knew would develop. And up until this season, we hadn't really seen that on a, on a consistent level. But this season specifically, and Vinicius specifically, as I mentioned, that's a player I want to talk about. Vinicius has looked to have taken a massive step from a season ago. And this is a player in, in Vinicius Jr. who, ever since arriving at the Bernabeu, we knew some of what he would offer. He's always been a threat to make runs in behind. He's got this blistering pace that many Spanish right-backs can't deal with. He's a just like any any Brazilian winger. He's a fantastic threat, a fantastic dribbling threat with the ball at his feet. He can seemingly work his way around anybody. But he never had finishing in his locker. He never had the ability to consistently finish chances in in his, his Swiss Army knife of abilities. And that, for a long time, was... What was holding him back? And we saw in 2020, 2021, he had spurts of, of matches where he really, really looked like that world-class winger that Real Madrid were expecting him to develop into. But he also had spurts of, of matches where he looked like a 15-year-old again. I mean, he had... It was very up and down for Vinicius. But at least at the start of the season, through these first few La Liga matches, he seems to have added finishing to his locker. He seems to be a bit more well-rounded than he was a season ago, and he really seems to have taken that big leap that Real Madrid are expecting him to take and to be that consistent presence on the left side of an attacking three, because that's, as we know, how Real Madrid like to play. He had a fantastic finish, again, against Celta Vigo to get Real Madrid's third goal. That was also where Benzema got his assist, and, and it was really, really well-worked. And it, it showed both players, Benzema and Vinicius, I think it showed both uh, it, it both showed off their, their best attributes. It involved uh, Benzema dropping deep to receive, and then Vinicius made a run down the left off of him. And Vinicius was played on side because the Celta Vigo back line was, was out, out of position and in a, in a, against a more composed defense, Vinicius would have been offside. But it was a really, really good ball played through by Benzema. Vinicius was in behind. He had unlocked the Celta Vigo defense in, in a matter of seconds. And of course, using that pace and that dribbling ability, the, nobody was able to catch up to him. But last year, that's where we would have seen Vinicius cut onto his right and pull a shot wide or try to do a bit too much with his feet and, and, and ultimately fail to score. But in this moment against Celta Vigo, he's running at, at the goal, he cuts it on his right, and he, he takes that shot right away. And it's a beautiful curling effort into the bottom right. He couldn't have placed it any better. And he also couldn't have timed it any better because Celta Vigo defenders were quickly running onto him. That is the difference, I think, with this year's Vinicius and last year's Vinicius. If he can keep his form, is he he seems to have developed this goal-scoring ability. He's already scored more goals this year than he has in the league a season ago. Hopefully, that's a sign of things to come. Because if it is, he will be a, a absolute joy to watch, more so than he already is. Um, the other player I want to talk about is Eden Hazard. Before we dive into how this affects Karen Benzema in the center, I want to talk about Eden Hazard as well, because his return to full fitness has also played an important role, because he gets... When Hazard is fully fit in this Real Madrid side, he gets more involved in the attack than anybody else who can play in that position, whether it's a player like Rodrigo, who we've seen at times this season, or a player like Gareth Bale, who started the season at right wing, or players like Luca Vasquez, uh, Rodrigo, even at times Federico Valverde. Eden Hazard offers more at that right wing spot than anybody else in this Real Madrid locker room. And that's why him being fully fit is so, so crucial. 
this season specifically, you can take a look at Eden Hazard's heat map for Real Madrid in the Liga this season. His role is is essentially to, to roam. He's got spots all over the attacking third when you look at his heat map. It's to roam. It's to pull defenders out of position. It's to create space. He's only got one assist to his name so far, but he's been very, very involved. And as we know, and as I'm going to keep going back to, because that is a central point, Karim Benzema operates best when he has space to exploit. That's what Eden Hazard provides in this team, even if he's not yet providing those those goal contributions yet. He also offers some tactical flexibility, which I think is important to mention in a Real Madrid side that includes Benzema, who, as we said, can play centrally or play wide, but also Vinicius, who we've seen start to play over on the right a little bit more this season. He still predominantly operates on the left side of things, but we've seen him come to the right at certain points. Hazard offers that the, the, the flexibility to make that possible. He can go play a central role and allow Benzema to get wide, or, and this is what really intrigues me, and what I think uh, we'll see Ancelotti do more of with this Real Madrid team, is we'll see Hazard get central, but then instead of swapping positions with Benzema, with Benzema we'll see Benzema and Vinicius both play further left, and Danny Carvajal is the one who will step up and occupy that right wing space. So, in doing that, you've got three really skilled attacking players in Vinicius, Benzema, and Hazard, all on one half of the pitch. And you've got Carvajal and also Federico Valverde over on the right, so you're not vacating space over there. But what that does is that creates overloads with three really, really skilled attacking players on one half of the pitch. And I think we're going to see Ancelotti do that a lot more, because if all three of them are fully fit, that's a tactic that can can absolutely wreak havoc over anybody, especially if you've got a right back who has to choose between tightly marking Vinicius or closing the space to the carrying Benzema. I mean, it's going to cause so many problems for opposition defenses if they choose to continue to do this. It's already been so much fun to watch. And truthfully, I don't even think Hazard is back to being a hundred percent fit, but he's still contributing these, these, these sneakily important roles. So let's talk about how that affects Benzema because all I've done so far is is offer up two players and how they've improved and how they improve the team, but I haven't said anything about how that, in turn, directly helps Karim Benzema. Um, but they really, really do, because Hazard's presence, combined with Vinicius's big development, they do allow us to see the best out of Benzema. Last year, you take a look at what Real Madrid did in 2020-2021. They largely played in a 5-3-2, uh, 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 asymmetrical 5-3-2 or a, an informal 5-3-2, whatever you want to call it, because the team would come out in a 4-3-3, but it was usually Luca Vasquez playing at right wing, and he would drop back and play as a right wing back, or, or if he was playing a right wing, he was mostly ineffective. He was not a fantastic player when he was operating in the attacking third, but they played in a 5-3-2 mostly with Vasquez as right wing back or at right wing, which left Benzema and Vinicius alone up top, and that is a fantastic for when you're, you're playing in transition or when you're trying to score on a counter-attacking move because Vinicius's pace and uh, and Benzema's hold-up play offer a whole lot when you're looking to hit quickly. But when you're setting up your attack in the final third and you've either got those two playing as forwards or then Luca Vasquez comes up to take that right wing space and again he wasn't particularly skilled at doing that anyway, that's where we saw them somewhat limited, especially considering Vinicius, as I mentioned, was was going up and down and having all sorts. It was a roller coaster of form throughout the 2020-2021 season for Vinicius Jr. And so compare that to this year, where you've got Vinicius, who seems to have taken a big step, and you've got Eden Hazard, who seems to be getting an extended run in the team because he's, he's healthy again. We're seeing the best out of Karim Benzema because 
Again, I'm going to say it again, and you're probably getting sick of it, but it's really, really important in this context. What Benzema does best is roam and hunt for space and find pockets that he can exploit, whether he's he's finding space between center backs to take a shot or whether or to make a run or whether he's finding space between the lines to drop into and, and help in the build-up play and help create. What Benzema does best and the reason why he's, he's so much different from other center forwards is that his best attribute is his ability to exploit space and do a whole lot of things with it. And so you look at that in the context of this attacking three, you've got Vinicius over on the left, who is now demanding attention from, from players like, uh, well, really any right back in La Liga. That pulls a defender wide. You've got Hazard, who can either stay on, on the sideline, it, be a chuck on the boot swinger, which he's not going to be, by the way. And But if he does, he'll pull that, that left back out of position, open up a ton of space for Benzema inside the 18-yard box. Or we'll see Hazard come centrally, play as an, an inverted winger, and, and look to to get into the space and pull defenders out of position. And all of that creates space for Karim Benzema to then create chances. And that, I think, and from what I've seen, is why he's been able to, goals and assists, generate so many goal involvements. Because he's finally, for the first time you can argue, since Cristiano Ronaldo left the Bernabeu, he's finally playing in an attacking three where all three players have clear-cut roles and they all excel at them. And they're all brilliant. And it works together so, so well. And then you've also got Luka Modric in midfield who is just is wreaking havoc whenever he steps forward with the ball. Um, this may be the best attacking three. If it can stay healthy, this may be Real Madrid's best attacking three since BBC from the Champions League trophy days. I mean, it's really, really, really high potential the way that they play um, in the attacking third and in the penalty area. And, and if, and th these are big ifs, if Howler stays healthy and if Vinicius continues this form and if it's not just another flash in the pan, uh, they're going to be, I think, pretty clear-cut favorites to win La Liga. Now, if we're talking about them as a whole, the defense uh, still needs some help. Of course, they're recovering after the departures of Sergio Ramos and Rafael Varane, uh, but David Alaba is hurt. He'll be back on the team. Um, so hopefully they'll have some reinforcements on the way. But uh, if Real I'll put it this way. If Real Madrid don't win the league, it'll have nothing to do with that attacking three and specifically with Karim Benzema. The bottom line here, and we're doing bottom lines again. I didn't do a bottom line for the Champions League preview in, uh, in episode three. But the bottom line here is that Benzema is in absolutely scintillating form in front of goal. 15 goal involvements in his first seven matches, but the evolution of the entire attacking three suggests that this success could actually be sustained, which sounds kind of silly to say now because you say, well, how can you possibly continue this pace? More than two goal involvements per match. I'm not saying he's going to finish with 80 goal involvements. What I am saying is that we could see Karim Benzema finish the club season leading Europe's top five leagues in both goals and assists based on how good and how cohesive and how skilled this attacking three is. It could be sustained for longer than you think. So if you're new, that's basically how, how it works when we run through a topic. We, we introduce a question, we discuss it for a while. That one actually ran very long. Usually segments are 15 or 20 minutes max. That was like 25, 26 minutes. I talk. Uh, I talk a lot, if you haven't been able to tell. I kind of just... This is, this is the pro and the con of not having a, a somebody next to me doing this podcast is that I can just go on tangents 
And some of them are, are valuable, I feel. Some of them, I, I say things that I don't even have written down, and I'm like, oh, that's actually a pretty good point. But other times, I do what I'm doing now, which is just talk unhinged about nothing particularly important, and next thing you know, it's been 30 minutes, and I've only talked about one topic. Um, but that's essentially how we do things. We introduce a, introduce a question, discuss it, and then go for a bottom line, which is essentially everything wrapped up into a nice nice little, like, like a Christmas gift, with a nice little bow on top. That's the bottom line. Um, a two or three sentence summary of what we've just discussed. Um, so that's that. Karim Benzema. Brilliant, 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 brilliant for Real Madrid this season. Here's to hoping that continues. Because uh, Karim Benzema, if I can throw in some opinion here, if I can throw in a dash of opinion on this predominantly objective tactics podcast, I think Karim Benzema is one of the most underrated players uh of the 2010s. I mean, I mean, this guy has been so effective for so long for a Real Madrid side that has won so many trophies. Um, and he seemed to have always been in the shadow of Cristiano Ronaldo, maybe deservedly so, but, uh, I mean, the, the, the class and the form has always been there and it's really, really starting to show in the last couple of seasons. Um, the reason why I let off with Karim Benzema is because I wanted to put off this discussion as far as possible about Spurs Arsenal, but I do think it's important to discuss and joking aside, um, you know, I, I, I've injected some emotion into this match, but this into this episode, should I say? But this was a really fascinating match tactically. Uh, it was very one-sided tactically, which I don't think is surprising anybody. But uh, I do, I do want to discuss this match from an objective viewpoint because there are a lot of a lot of things that I saw and a lot of questions that I have that I know many people on social media uh, were were sharing, were were, were agreeing on. So Spurs Arsenal, if you didn't see the match, Arsenal won 3-1. They scored three first half goals. Tottenham looked absolutely dead. Uh, they got their goal in like the 79th minute. It was it was it meant nothing essentially in the grand scheme of things. Actually, they almost got a second later in the in the second half because Lucas Moura uh, hit the post. It was a fantastic reflex save by Aaron Ramsdale to push it up off his goalpost. Um, but regardless, Arsenal wins this match 3-1. They jump ahead of Spurs in the table. They've won three on the jump, and they look really really good. The same cannot be said about Spurs. But before we talk about this match tactically, let's discuss the 11s because there are some some points that I want to make about uh, the, the teams that both managers chose to use. I, objectively, was absolutely in love with the team that Mikel Arteta started on Sunday against Spurs. It was Ramsdale in goal, who's been very, very good uh, for them in the last couple of matches. Kieran Tierney, Gabriel, Ben White, Takahiro Tomiyasu formed a brilliant back four. It was a midfield pivot of Thomas Partey and Granit Xhaka. Emil Smith-Rowe, Martin Odegaard, and Bukayo Saka played in an attacking three, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang played as a lone striker. They were calling it a 4-1-4-1. Others were calling it a 4-3-3. It was a 4-2-3-1. Don't be fooled. It was a 4-2-3-1 um, that played a bunch of different ways, but this is a textbook 4-2-3-1 that Mikel Arteta used. And again, I absolutely loved it. It was the strongest defense they could have thrown out. It included two summer signings, but they, they've both been really, really good. It included a balance midfield where you had your defensive contribution with with Shaka and Partha you had your your attacking prowess and and your your more creative players in Odegaard and Smith Rowe and you have plenty of youth and energy in this attack to get after a weak Tottenham defense it, it really it has been a very weak Tottenham defense and and Mikel Arteta prioritized that by playing Smith Rowe, Odegaard, Saka and Aubameyang every single one could cause problems now let's talk about the Tottenham 11 because I did a complete 180 on that one. Arsenal's 11, I loved. Tottenham 11, and I have this written down. This is literally the first bullet point. Hated every bit of it. It made no sense to me. And that's not speaking as a fan. That's speaking as as 
somebody who thinks he's he's decent at 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 objectively analyzing the game tactically. You can be the judge of, of if I am or not. But the Spurs eleven, let's talk about it. Loris in goal, a back four of Regulon, Eric Dyer, Davinson Sanchez, Jafet Tanganga, a midfield, a flat midfield three of Tangi and Dombele, Pierre Milhoyberg, and Deli Ali, and then a front three of Hyungmin Sun, Harry Kane, and Lucas Mora. Um I'll, I'll talk about why why I didn't like it first, and then we'll get into the actual game itself. Uh, the biggest issue that I had with this Spurs eleven, there's no balance in midfield. There is is, it's one defensive midfielder in a flat three, alongside two players who want to get forward and contribute little out of possession. Uh, that w- was shocking to me, especially when Arsenal played with an attacking four that is is going to get at you, particularly is going to get at your midfielders. Christian Romero left on the bench in favor of uh, a center-back pairing that had conceded six times in two matches. One defensive midfielder against a side that have, as I mentioned, four fantastic attacking players, full of energy, full of pace, and who can play anywhere in the attacking third. You know that this Arsenal attack is not going to be static. They're going to be moving um, and trying to pull you out of position. You've got two out of your three midfielders are very susceptible to being caught out of position, out of possession. Um, I was confused. Didn't make a whole lot of sense. And and I, I was quickly proven right within the first 10 or 15 minutes. Um, because the next thing that Spurs did that really confused me, and now we'll get into the actual tactical portion of this discussion, is they pressed with their first two lines. They pressed with the attacking three, and they pressed with the midfield three. Um, and it, it made no sense for a whole number of reasons, as I've mentioned. And I listen, again, this is going to sound extremely negative, especially because if you're listening, you know that I support Spurs. But these are are, are not... Are, are not conclusions that I'm drawing based on, on my emotion. These are conclusions that I'm drawing that have been drawn by, by plenty of people on, on everywhere. I mean, these are just our, our baffling 101 decisions that Nuno Espirito Santo got wrong and that we still have not gotten an answer for because in his press conference yesterday, all he said was, was the game plan was right. The player selection was wrong. So we really don't know anything about, about, why Nuno chose to play this way, but everybody is still asking why in the world has he done it. They pressed with their first two lines, which they really hadn't done in any match all season, and there were a couple reasons why it didn't make sense. The first is that Arsenal played mostly in a back three in possession, meaning that they had width from the fullbacks and they had width from the the three faux center backs as well, which meant that Spurs, when they pressed high, they either spread their press apart by pressing each center back man to man, or they condensed it and they left players free anyway, rendering it mostly useless. That's what happens when you use three players to press a back three is you're either playing one V ones and you're leaving a lot of space in between you, or you're condensing it and you've got one of the three center backs at least is in plenty of space. And then what's the point of pressing in the first place? And it was also an interesting decision because uh, on the ball, Kieran Tierney and Thomas Partey specifically, not even paying attention yet to the three center backs. Kieran Tierney and Thomas Partey are fantastic on the ball, particularly Thomas Partey, who who, who he, he positioned himself as the deepest of the midfielders. It was him and Shaka. Shaka played a bit more forward. I mean, Thomas Partey, it's been this way since he was, was patrolling midfields at Atletico Madrid. He is unpressable. He is press resistant. Thomas Partey, he's got such a fantastic understanding of positioning and body movements. He shields the ball so well. He releases it quickly and accurately. I mean, Thomas Partey is the kind of midfielder who, 
you just fall in love with watching. I mean, that, that's the kind of player that he is. He's so good progressing the ball when he's got it, when he's the only one playing deep. Very much like Frankie DeYoung, in a sense. Just a player who who cannot be dispossessed. He's so, so strong with the ball at his feet, and he's comfortable on the ball. Releases the ball well, releases the ball accurately. And so Arsenal had no issues at all with breaking through the Spurs press. It was actually, objectively, uh, quite aesthetically pleasing how easy it was for Arsenal to consistently play out from the back and break through Spurs' two lines of pressing and quickly get into the attacking half. You had Kieran Tierney and Bukayo Saka dropping deep to provide the width. Um, again, Thomas did most of the work in the center, and then once the lines were broken, and it was essentially five or six Spurs players now caught out because they were trying to press high. They had Martin Odegaard, Emile Smith-Rowe, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang ahead. And that's why Arsenal were so efficient and brilliant. What I love about this Arsenal attack, what I what I always, always love to go back to, is that they've got four players who like to move and find space. Maybe you can make the argument that Aubameyang doesn't as much, but again, with, with pace like his, he has no problem with getting in behind. He can do that in the blink of an eye. But Emil Smith-Rowe, Martin Odegaard, Bukayo Saka, three players that are constantly looking for space, linking to take defenders out of the game, and then using their pace and understanding of each other to hit quickly. And that's where the Spurs midfield three really failed them. Um, and that's really what, what my biggest question mark is when I saw the team selection. And it, it ended up being what came back to to really, really screw them over. And it didn't come as a surprise. Because once Arsenal progressed the ball into the Spurs half, we saw Hoybjerg because he had to. Hoybjerg initiated the pressure from midfield. And he was flanked by Dele and Nombele. But he was doing most of the work, Pierre Mohoybjerg. And Again, with so much Arsenal movement off the ball and, and so many players trying to pull him out of position and, and get in behind and find the space around him, he was constantly caught out whenever he eventually chose to press the ball carrier because he had to at some point. He couldn't just sit deep or else you let Arsenal just, just run at you. So when he did inevitably come out to press the ball carrier, and a lot of times it was Odegaard or Thomas Parthi or Granit Xhaka, uh, he was... He was basically taken out of the game because the Spurs didn't get a whole lot out of possession from Delhi and from Ndombele. And as I mentioned, Arsenal were so good at passing through them that once Hoybjerg stepped out of midfield, there was space to be exposed there. And when that happened, it forces either Devinson Sanchez or Eric Dyer to step out to step out of their position as a central defender, neither one of which is particularly positionally aware. And that's if you want to see an example of this, Arsenal's second goal perfect example that shows how quick and easy it was for the Gunners to advance the ball down the full length of the pitch and score. I would have, if from a Spurs perspective, confused as to why Nuno didn't go with, with a pivot of Hoiberg and Oliver Skip, or even even a flat three with, with Skip and, and Hoiberg and, and then Deli or, or Indomele. That's what they'd been doing for, for most of their matches earlier in the season. Not totally sure why they went away from it on Sunday, because with, with both, in any match, having Delhi and Tongi play in a, a flat midfield three is, you're asking for trouble, but especially in a match against Arsenal that love to, to get forward, and they've got really skilled attacking players and really youthful, pacey attacking players, uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, and I think a lot of people had their concerns entering the match, and those concerns were, uh, were validated. So, it was, I mean, again, from an objective viewpoint, Watching Arsenal play in the attacking third, it was uh, a fantastically fun attack to watch. It was it was it was beauty in action the way that they they just cut through Spurs like a hot butter knife. 
But Spurs' laziness off the ball and their lack of positional understanding and their inability to really get back and defend and for whatever reason their decision to press so high up the pitch with players who uh, could not track back once they were inevitably caught out, um, it did them no favors. So in possession, Arsenal light years ahead of where Spurs were uh, and they got three goals in the first half to show for. But out of possession, there's one player that I really want to highlight and I haven't mentioned his name yet, but that's Taka Tomiyasu who... who is really, I mean, Takahiro Tomiyasu is really showing that he might be the bargain buy of the summer. He was brilliant, and he has been brilliant for Arsenal all season long. Signed on deadline day, and he really hasn't put a foot wrong. He was fantastic against Spurs as well. He's been fantastic all season. Um, he did a whole bunch of things for Arsenal out of possession. He offered defensive stability. He was that third center back in that back three when Arsenal were in possession. He was what allowed Kieran Tierney to find space on the left side uh, without Gabrielle and Ben White feeling too exposed and, and and prone to losing the ball with with that that three high press that Spurs were bringing. Um, but even in possession, I mean, he had a bit of progressive edge with the ball, but he also understood when to just boot it long and when to clear. He, he was uh, really his decision making was very very good for Arsenal. Um, against Spurs for the full 90 minutes. He won four out of five aerial duels. He was was really good in the air. He largely kept Son in his pocket. As I said, Son scored Spurs' only goal, but that was after he had moved centrally and wasn't really Tomias' problem anymore. Just a really, really good signing for an Arsenal side that needed, desperately, new blood at right back. Hector Bellerin wasn't working. Um, who are the other ones? That, uh, Sad Kalasinac was, was playing on the right for a brief time, I think. Uh, Callum Chambers was, was not it for Arsenal, and it was, it was a constant just, just death loop for Arsenal fans of who was gonna, who was, who, who are we being subjected to at right back today? Uh, Takahiro Tomiyasu looks like the answer. He's been brilliant. Fantastic bit of business that, that Arsenal were able to pull off on deadline day. Uh, the bottom line here, we'll wrap this up quickly. The bottom line here is that Arsenal, <laughs> I actually wrote this one down. It was pretty funny. Um, Arsenal were brilliant. Spurs were awful. Serious questions must be asked, I think, at this point about Nuno at Tottenham if his tactics are actually working with this team. While Arsenal, on the other hand, are very much in the top six conversation. This may be their biggest win since they beat Chelsea in the FA Cup final a couple years ago. That's how impactful, I think, a result like this is for an Arsenal side that has been very, very up and down for the last 18 months. This win was crucial. Okay, it's been like 45 minutes. Let's go ahead and wrap this puppy up. Let's go ahead and wrap this bad boy up, huh? I think we've been here for long enough. Um, only two topics today because these were two things that I really, really wanted to get into. I really wanted to to just, just crack into and, and dive dive into and analyze. Um, for what it's worth, if you're a new listener, usually we'll do three. We'll do three and and the little brief ending segment that I'm going to get into in a couple minutes. But um, today there was only two because this this Benzema story I loved and this North London Derby I really needed to talk about because um, tactically it was, it was a fascinating match to see. But if you are new, the way that I end every single podcast episode is with a segment that I call Bet the Bank. And what Bet the Bank is, is essentially I... I a bit about me. I love youth talent. I love youth prospects. I love knowing about who we're going to be talking about in the next five years. Not necessarily who it is now. I love talking about the players of today, but I love even more talking about the players of tomorrow. So what Bet the Bank is, is I, I offer a name who I think is a sure thing to reach the top of, of the footballing world. And the two players, if I can remember correctly, the two players we've talked about so far are uh, Dominic Sobitzlai, on episode one, and Karim Adiemi from Salzburg on episode two. Um, 
episode three, there wasn't one because it was a special Champions League preview podcast, but we're getting back to it today. And I'm going to actually come to the MLS, as I hinted in the opening. I'm going to come to MLS, and I think this one is probably uh, a bit less of a sure thing than any of the other two that I've mentioned so far. But as as a, I, as a, a viewer of, of this player and just as a fan of the United States national team, I, I think this is a player who the, the hype and the attention surrounding him is warranted. And my bet the bank player for episode four is FC Dallas's Ricardo Pepe, who is is at 18 years old, capturing the hearts of U.S. fans everywhere. I mean, this guy is uh, he's quickly gone to the top in MLS. He, he's he's really, really a fantastic striker. And I'll, I'll dive into a little bit why. But I mean, this is a player that has USA fans dreaming about 2026 and maybe even to dare about about 2022, at least in terms of of uh, who was going to be leading the lines. Because this USA side, if you're familiar with CONCACAF football, uh, this is a USA side that really have question marks at the striker position. They're, they're pretty much set everywhere else. Maybe you can argue that the defense still needs some working out, but uh, the biggest question mark is certainly who is going to be playing in that number nine role in, in Greg Berhalter's uh, 4-3-3, 4-3-2-1, whatever. Uh, the strikers that, that the USA have, have used have not always panned out. We're still waiting to see Josh Sargent step into his game. Uh, Daryl DK has been up and down. Gazi Zardes is... Uh, uh, past his prime, you could say, at least in terms of, of international football. So Ricardo Pepe really has been a godsend for, for U.S. fans who are asking the question, who is going to fill that place? Because I think a lot of people think that that could be Pepe. Uh, the information from this bit comes from a conversation that I had with Drew Epperly. He's the manager of Big D Soccer, which is the FC Dallas SB Nation blog. Go and give it a look. Uh, Drew Epperly, fantastic knowledge of, of the game, but more specifically FC Dallas. He's covered them for a while, and uh, we had a really, really fantastic conversation on Twitter about this player, specifically Ricardo Pepe. So as I kind of alluded to, what what impresses me the most and what impresses us the most about Ricardo Pepe is that He's really, and this is going to sound silly, but he's the most striker-like striker that the USA have because his qualities and his traits and his biggest strengths are exactly what you would expect from a poaching number nine. He's a poaching of a, he's a poacher of a striker, has a knack for finding space between the lines and between defenders. He's got this. Uh, this is something that 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 Drew Epperly said in our conversation. He had a sense of of conviction. This sense of conviction when he, he makes decisions in the box. He's, it seems like his decision-making, he always chooses whether it's to, to lay a pass off or take a shot. He never seems to make the wrong decision. And that is a trait that is miles ahead from other players his age. 12 goals in MLS this season. He's attracting interest. There was a report a couple days ago that Pepe is attracting interest from Champions League clubs, not just clubs, Champions League clubs in Italy, Champions League clubs in Germany, and he's got some English shooters as well. Ricardo Pepe could be on the move sooner than you know it. And that would not come as a surprise, I think, to many MLS fans and many USA fans, many of which would like to see him stay in the MLS, I think, for another season, continue to develop, but also get some consistent playing time in preparation for the 2022 World Cup, because this is a player in Pepe who has made his impact felt on the international stage right away. Uh, he made his USA debut against Honduras in World Cup qualifiers a couple weeks ago, and he essentially handed uh, the USA three points single-handedly. A goal, two assists in the in their 4-1 win, but this was a USA side that looked dead up until his introduction. Uh, Pepe was a super sub on that night, 
and and he seems to only be getting better, only to be improving. One thing that 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 Drew did tell me about that I think should be noted is Ricardo is uh, Ricardo. Like I know him, like he's my buddy. Uh, Pepe is not the perfect striker. He is not uh, without fault, and and the place where he could use a bit of of, of development is in his holdup play, and that was something that 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 I noticed in their match against Honduras, and that was something that that he said he's noticed really since he, he broke into the FC Dallas first team, is that he, he he still needs a little bit of help with knowing how to use his body when he's tightly marked by a defender, uh, how to how to drop deep and and, and to assist in the build-up play. But that is a trait that, that, you know, we see strikers, especially at an age this young, we see strikers develop that. That, that, is, not, uh, that is not terminal by any stretch of the imagination. It's a trait that that he will be looking to develop and actually move to England or to Europe, anywhere in Europe could could go a long way in helping him to develop specifically that. But aside from that, uh, Ricardo Pepe, this player at 18 years old, is head and shoulders better than most other strikers that we have seen at this age. Um, maybe it's a bit of a USA bias. I don't think it is, though, because this is, he, he, well, first and foremost, he's attracting European interest uh, from Champions League sides, which is, is nothing to shake a stick at. Uh, but also, he, he just seems to be to be... At every level he's played at, whether it's at college or in USL or at now at MLS, and then for a little bit in CONCACAF as well, he's impressing at every single level he's playing at. There's no reason to think that that stops now. Ricardo Pepe, my episode four bet the bank player. I know it's a bit more a uh, bit more of a hot take than the other two, but that's the point. I don't want to be giving you I don't want to be giving you these 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 names that everybody knows like. Like Eve Basuma, oh, big deal. We know he's gonna. We know he's gonna be good. But players like Ricardo Pepe, and I, I'd like to dive into some of the other leagues that uh, that might not be as well known. That's what Bet the Bank is for: to uncover these talents and to to really uh, give my explanation for it. I suppose um, I've started slow. I'm gonna make them a bit more more unknown as we progress. Had to get the feet wet. Um, but that, that's it. That, that's our Bet the Bank player for episode four. FC Dallas striker, Ricardo Pepe. And that is the conclusion of episode four. That is how we're going to wrap things up today. Um, gosh, it's been 52 minutes. I was ex- Truthfully, I was expecting this episode to be like 35 or 40 max. It's been 52 minutes. If you got it, the whole thing, you are an absolute real one. You are a legend, and I appreciate every single one of you for, uh, for, for listening through this entire episode. If you like what I said, if you didn't like what I said, if you uh, have any thoughts at all, throw me a shout on Twitter. I, I try to reply to everyone at WillFowler5. Follow Breaking the Lines on Twitter at BTLVid. There is plenty more content like this coming, um, and that has already come, actually. If you're not familiar with Breaking the Lines and, and what it's about, it's essentially a strictly tactics-based uh, platform. With player analyses, with match analyses, they did a really big, fantastic project on Euro 2020 that you should go back and check out. Um, and there's content, there's new, fresh content every single day. If you like this podcast, you'll love what we've got on the website. So go and check it out again at BTLVid. I'll be right back here next week with a brand new episode, episode five if my math is correct, is where we'll be for the next episode. You're not going to want to miss it. Not sure what we'll discuss yet, but I can assure you that it will be every bit as intriguing and fun as this one was. Hopefully you thought it was intriguing as fun. If you didn't think it was intriguing and fun, well, first of all, why have you made it this far? That's my first question for you. But second of all, if you didn't think this episode was intriguing and fun, episode five for you will be more intriguing and fun. So everyone's got a reason to come back. I don't want to hear any excuses. 
Everyone's got a reason to come back and listen to episode five. Hopefully you do. I'll see you in that one. We'll have a whole fresh new slate of topics to discuss. It'll be a good time. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Will Fowler. You've been listening to the Tactics Room Podcast presented by Breaking the Lines.